My name is Mason Cambridge. I'm a historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on The Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Arente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. Being generous to myself, even if everything Orente told me is the absolute truth, I wouldn't call my book wrong, but only part of the story. Since the release of the second episode, most of the gentle mockery of my stupidity has ceased, but a more substantial attack by my fellow historians has begun. Dr. Jaria Close has said that I am amongst the very worst of modern historians and so eager for publicity and attention will believe, or pretend to believe, the most preposterous and obvious charlatan. She never liked me. That said, there has been some positive feedback, unfortunately from those who believe I have abandoned history and instead taken up fiction. I did receive a curious letter from the previously unheard legal practice of watered-down Ashkin and Nurio, Kasyarene lawyers who would like to speak to Mr. Orente about a number of substantial debts and would be extremely grateful in any help in tracking him down. Unfortunately, Orente is no longer in touch with me, and after providing his evidence and casting a careful eye over my work, has vanished as utterly as any man could. We left the narrative last time with Orente meeting a border guard, Medea, who had helped Mare cross the border into another part of the city where he met his untimely end. Medea seemed genuine in her grief and guilt for Murray, but I knew that I couldn't really trust her. The arrival of a person who could answer all of my questions about my colleague's death was perhaps just too convenient. It seemed 50-50 that this might be some plot to compromise me. I had done similar things in the past, and in the espionage game it pays to suspect every person you meet. A beautiful young woman takes an interest in you? Suspect her. A handsome soldier invites you to dinner? Suspect him. Someone holds a door open for you as you enter a building. They could be a spy. It can be a bit tiring, but merely it's good advice whether you're a spy or not. Ultimately, everyone is working towards their own interests. At least you'd put the knife away, which was a good forward step in our relationship. We made our way into a tavern and sat down. Medea shooed away the waiter, and we weren't bothered again, despite not ordering anything. I asked Medea, in a hushed voice that seemed appropriate for such discussions, when she'd last seen Murray and how he had seemed. As always, Medea had met Murray on Derald Corner, a short journey to their crossing point on Vaughan Street. As a border guard, Medea could easily have walked Murray through one of the few gateways in broad daylight, and no one would have cared. But Murray was a famous face who wanted a little discretion. Once into Draven territory, Medea had walked him to the building he was looking for— it was unlikely, but possible he could be stopped by a border guard and then arrested when he couldn't provide valid documentation. When they reached the hotel on Vidian, they had parted company, and Medea went back to work. As for how Murray was, she said he seemed fine, his happy, normal self. I had to ask her, even though the location was enough to work it out, who was Murray going to see? Medea could tell I knew too, but she said the name, Lady Rias Joquan. The name made me half suspect that this woman wasn't his mistress. Not that she wasn't beautiful. Lady Joquan was considered one of the most beautiful women in the city, but she was far more than just a pretty face. Lady Joquan was in the city for the Congress. She wasn't a politician or power broker. She was a host. She had been in the city for eleven months, setting up in anticipation of the Congress. Other hosts would just turn up the week before a big event, not Lady Joquan. Her time in the city was planned like a military campaign. 
She held breakfasts, afternoon teas, banquets, balls, intimate get-togethers, and massive parties, and all she wanted was to be considered the best host in the city. It made complete sense for Marais to be on good terms with Lady Jo Kwan, as much could be learned simply by attending her events. The next stop was obvious. We had to see Lady Jo Kwan. Medea didn't seem too pleased to be going, and she seemed to be full of excuses, until I promised to pay her. The border guard were normally a friendly face for those who were residents in the city, and did a lot of favors for them, but outsiders had to pay. Such mercenary characters were a boon for people like me and Murray, and could be extremely useful. We made it to Vaughan Street without incident, although a couple of other border guards cast a glance in our direction, and Medea nodded back, assuring them everything was okay. We reached the border wall, and in some ways it was imposing. Twenty feet high, towers, spikes. But it was actually in quite poor condition, and would barely slow an army down. Another sign that the walls had never been about outside attacks by foreign armies, but controlling the people inside. The wall was covered in graffiti and fly posters, making the dull black bricks actually quite colorful. We approached a section of the wall where a number of crates had been stacked haphazardly against it. A single border guard leaned against the wall, but he said nothing, while Medea moved a blanket out of the way and revealed a small opening. I crouched down and managed to make it through, and suddenly I was in Draven territory. The laws were different. The beer was better, but the coffee was worse. The soldiers were just as difficult in their own ways. In the course of my work, I went to every part of the city, and only a couple of times had I actually followed the law and left the city and re-entered it through another gate. As a diplomat, I was insulated from a lot of this, but in many ways, crossing that wall was like going back in time. While on Draven territory, I was ultimately at the whim of a narcissistic religious zealot who liked to pretend the last two hundred years hadn't happened. I was talking, of course, about Emperor Varance II. Like many rulers, Varance liked the advancement progress brought in technology, industry, warfare, but despised it in personal freedom, a simple and straightforward legal system, and a sensible tax policy. It was hard to not feel slightly more oppressed, and I was thankful that my embassy was in the Barristone section. Of the three main powers who controlled Korriban, it was the Dravens who had had the most difficulty with the cosmopolitan and diverse city, and there had been a lot of trouble in the first few years. We hurried on to the Hotel Onvidian, which at one point had been one of the minor palaces of the city. As soon as we arrived, Medea seemed eager to leave, as if she felt she had done her duty. I disagreed. I walked into the hotel with Medea following. There were no staff in the lobby, but there often wasn't, and I climbed the several flights of stairs to Lady Joquan's apartment. The door was ajar a little, and I had a terrible feeling of foreboding that told me not to open it, but I ignored that feeling. The first room had been ransacked. I walked into the room and looked around, worried I would find Lady Joquan's body. That was when I saw them. Four people in one of the other rooms, and I recognized them. I turned to run from the room, but already saw two more people in the doorway. Medea had moved to the center of the room, her hand stuffed in her coat pocket, undoubtedly gripping the knife I knew she had. The four people from the other room were aware of me, and one of them approached. He was marginally less rough-looking than his companions. He wore nicer clothes, and his weapons seemed a little newer and more expensive. His name was Jan Ulrich. Grand Knight of the Sacred Brotherhood. I put my hands up to show I meant no harm, but I think that hardly mattered. 
I tried to explain I was only there to see Lady Joquan, but as she was not present that I would leave and obviously never say anything about what I had seen. Elric approached me, a long, heavy-looking baton in one hand, which he raised and pressed into my chest, and he asked me who I was. Internally, I breathed a sigh of relief. We had met before, but evidently I had made little impression on Orek, and I was confident I could lie my way out of the building. Then Medea gave me up. She told them who I was, what I did, and why I was there. She then identified herself as a border guard. Orek shrugged and waved a gloved hand in the direction of the doorway. Medea hurried from the room without looking back. Orek slowly walked over to an overturned cabinet and plucked an unbroken bottle from the contents. For a moment he looked for a glass, and when he couldn't find one, simply drank from the bottle. He offered me the bottle, and I politely refused, saying it was too early. Orek then walked towards me, and as I stepped back to keep space between us, he advanced further until I hit the wall. He leaned in close and asked if I knew who he was. I told him I did. He then whispered a single word. Confess. It was not a word you wanted a knight of the Sacred Brotherhood to direct towards you. It made your future seem very short and very painful. But it didn't scare me. Well, it did. But it also brought out my defiance. I told Orek I wasn't some peasant who he could brutalize without impunity. I was a diplomat, a member of the nobility, a Kassarian citizen, and I would not stand for it. This seemed to amuse Orek somewhat. I pushed him roughly away from me, turned to punch one of the other knights, but then someone knocked me down with a savage blow across the back of my head. Orek loomed over me, and he shouted confess again, and he hit me with a baton. I curled into a ball, and he hit me again. The next few minutes passed into something of a blur of pain and shouting. Orek didn't actually want me to confess to anything. This was a paper-thin veneer of legitimacy. He wasn't simply beating me, he was interrogating me. I knew this and said nothing, still knowing there was no right answer I could give. Eventually I would break and just shout confessions to just about anything. Orek stopped his attack and gave orders to his men. They dragged me to my feet and we left the apartment. This time we passed several people on the way out, and they actively avoided looking at us. I knew where they were taking me. After the near destruction of the Sacred Brotherhood fighting the infected, Varance II had given them a small island in the bay to use as their headquarters. The fortress they had built there was a place no one wanted to find themselves. Varance had given them permission to wander his territory doing their work, but it was in their fortress, away from even the Draven soldiers. That things got really dark. As a historian, it's necessary when looking at individuals, countries, and organizations to judge them not by your standards, but the standards of the day. And I feel I am on very safe ground that, for practically all of their existence, the Sacred Brotherhood were abhorrent by the standards of the day. Murder, torture, kidnapping, massacres, making no distinction between guilty and innocent, they only stopped when someone more powerful made them stop. At the time of the ignition, most people hated them, and now they are lauded for their heroic actions during that disaster. Of course, none of them are left now, so it seems that is how history will remember them. The Sacred Brotherhood by Dr. Anera Kosarin Their full name is the Sacred Brotherhood of the Champions of God, an unwieldy name that is usually shortened to the Sacred Brotherhood. 
founded in 1032, they have had nearly a millennia in which to do their work. And while they have taken on different roles over the centuries, their work has been war, torture, and violence. Like many similar groups across the world, they dress up their destruction in noble and pious aims. From their first century, they sought to extend their church's hold on the fringes of the Asalian continent, and had some success and have clung to this reputation as great holy warriors. But I want to talk about one of their biggest failures. In the modern world, they have struggled to find a place, and where once they could put an army of 20,000 in the field, by the time of the infection, they were a little over 2,000. As the infected tore across the land, they offered their services. 1,500 knights charged a mass of the infected ten times that amount. They imagined the infected were just a bunch of peasants they could ride down and break. The infected do not think like people. A mob would have seen the first few lines crushed by the knights and ran. All the infected saw were victims. Not only that, but there were a few things the knights hadn't anticipated, like how even the best-trained horses in the world were panicked by the infected, or that driving a lance into the infected wouldn't necessarily put them down. Less than 200 knights escaped with their lives. The Sacred Brotherhood was virtually destroyed in a single day. Their glory days were already centuries in the past, and they had thought saving mankind in this way would revitalize them. What remained of the Brotherhood took shelter in Korriban, supposedly planning their next great attack on the infected. Eventually, they found a prominent supporter in Varance II, Emperor of Javia. Their military prowess abandoned, to be little better than thugs. Extract from the Diary of Captain Chloe Vasker, April 16th, 1886. I've never liked the Sacred Brotherhood. They are cruel, cruel people, and they got what they deserved at Beskov. We already knew the best way to handle the infected. Strong fortifications and let them come to you. But they wanted a cavalry charge so they could be heroes. Pathetic. Of course, once they learned fighting the infected wasn't going to be easy, they quit, going back to picking on people who were different to them. So when I saw them dragging out some poor man already half-beaten to death, what else could I do? If I had known who he was, I might have left him to them. No. He doesn't deserve that. No one does. I had been at the Legion House on Hinault Street, just seeing how things were and checking all my comrades. Fighting the infected has an effect on people after a while. I think all war does. I've seen many veterans rave, men and women, ruined by what it does to the body and the mind. But with the infected, there's something else. There's an atmosphere. The towns close to the infected cremate their dead. Too scared they will rise. People who are ill or weak will move away. And a lot of the legionnaires talk about uh, darkness. 
that takes hold of them. I think a lot of it is who they're fighting. They're not soldiers. They're not even really our enemy. They're just people, infected and turned into monsters. What if there is a way to cure them? What then? I don't know how many I've killed. Keeping count is not a healthy thing, but you have to wonder what's left of the person. People can leave the Legion at any time, but even those who have been crushed by the fighting still want to contribute. They run the Legion houses, raise money, organize supplies, just something to help. We all joined the Legion because we believed in the cause. And that doesn't go away. So I left the house, and there they were, seven of them against one man. He was wearing a fucking evening suit, like he was at a ball. I followed them. They reached the river where a small boat was waiting for them, and I knew they were taking him to that island. Even though part of me said not to get involved, I couldn't ignore it. I drew my pistol and stuffed it in the pocket of my coat. I turned my collar up and kept my face down. I shambled forward as if drunk, muttering to myself. A couple of them turned to me as I approached, but did nothing. I was only a few feet away from them when one of them started walking toward me. He was a big man and carried a club, but clearly didn't see me as a threat. He stopped me with a hand on my shoulder and told me to turn back the way I had come. And I nodded in agreement, but carried on. I tripped at the edge of the group and one of them pulled me to my feet. I drew my gun and hit him hard in the face with the butt. He jumped back and fell in the river. None of them were quite sure what had happened, which gave me another second. I shoulder-charged the next one in the river before spinning round and jamming my gun under the chin of their leader. I told the rest to back away, or I'd fire. The Barrington 80 Special Edition pistol is a very intimidating weapon, especially as that was not what was intended. Barrington Gunsmith's LTD supplied the Legion with this wonderful weapon, a single-shot pistol powerful enough that even if you didn't get a killing shot, you'd blast a large hole in someone to stop them. Not only that, it was heavy. The intention being you could use it as a club to crush a zombie's skull. Of course, the infected weren't intimidated. They didn't feel fear. But to ordinary people, the sight of the weapon could be terrifying. The knights obeyed and slowly moved back, forming a circle around me and their leader. The remaining four had all drawn their own weapons. As a rule, the knights in the city didn't carry guns. The Draven Emperor thought that a step too far. This gave me an advantage, but if I fired, I wouldn't get a chance to reload. I moved and held my hostage with an arm across his throat and the gun pressed to his head and I explained what I wanted. They had to let their prisoner go. That was it. If they wanted, we could settle things violently once he was free. My hostage categorically refused these terms and insisted that I was the one in danger. They didn't think I'd fire. To be honest... I don't know how far I was prepared to go, and luckily, none of us had to find out. A long whistle pierced the tense silence, and we all looked to the source of it. 
A young man was striding forward, a bat in one hand, but he wasn't alone. A dozen others were close behind, all carrying makeshift but intimidating weapons. There were more whistles and more people emerged. Some were women and even children, some of them just armed with bricks or stones. The bat-wielding man at the front pointed his weapon at the nearest of the knights and told them to fuck off. This crowd was slowly growing bigger, and all of the knights had lost their swagger. I pushed their leader forward, but kept my aim focused on him. The knights made to leave with their prisoner, when the bat-wielder stopped them. For a moment, their leader considered arguing, but then thought better of it, and he and his men quickly got into their boat and left. The prisoner was a man called Ciro Orente, who thanked me for saving him. The bat-wielding mob leader was a man by the name of Wilson Trek. When I revealed my identity, they were stunned, as they had heard of me. I quickly left, not wanting to deal with the attention. I took a long walk back to the Legion house, and as I had my hand on the door, there was a sharp whistle from across the street. It was Trek. I walked over to him, and he put his hand out. I shook it and instantly recognized the secret handshake. I didn't return it, but gave him a slight nod of recognition. I've always found secret handshakes one of the more absurd ways of conducting business. But Henaria was in many ways an absurd country. Trek told me he was very grateful of the support of my friends. And when I told him that I had no friends outside the Legion, he looked confused. Vasker's nationality has always been used as a stick to beat her with a way to prove she wasn't an idealistic woman who was willing to fight for what she believed in, but a sly trickster, spreading revolution and dissent wherever she went. Vasker had already left Hanaria and was fighting in the Legion when the Hanarian Revolution swept through the country. While it may be true that some of the early revolutionary principles could be found in Vasker, such as the idea that all members of humankind are natural friends and allies, she deplored what the revolution became. For it was certainly true that Hanaria had agents in Korriban supporting people like Trek, people who saw Korriban as its own country. Hanaria would supply weapons and money to what they saw as the International Revolution, the end of kings and religions and a better governing system. Of course, that system included an awful lot of murder, prison camps, and mob rule. Naturally, as an historian of Korriban, I am familiar with Captain Chloe Vasker, and before I met Horente was of the opinion that she was one of the many casualties of the ignition. In fact, her prominent role in Orente's story was an early indicator to me that this was pure fantasy, and it took me a long time to take the idea seriously. To this day, Vasca remains an icon to those who oppose monarchy and tyranny, and as a pioneering woman who became a decorated war hero in a time when virtually the only army that would accept women was the Legion. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Kleinrich was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbeam.com. Sira Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y Chloe Vasco was played by Caroline Minks. Caroline is the person behind the Scary Stories for Modern Minds podcast and is currently working on a new podcast called Seen and Not Heard. Find Caroline on Twitter at Saucy Minks. 
Dr. Inera Kozaran was played by Tal Mania. Find Tal on Twitter at Starplanes or visit their website talmania.cerrd.com. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Gavin Crockett. Find Gavin on Twitter at gcroditmusic or on Instagram at gavincroditmusic. Thank you for listening to the Ray Mission Theory, a Thrown Together Productions show.